Faith is certainly an essential element in the Christian life. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse number 6, the inspired writer, and I, as you know, believe it to be the Apostle Paul, said, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Also we find a Bible definition for the word faith by the same author in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews and in verse 1, where it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You know, this is also very important, and we find that the Apostle Paul, once again, the same author, talked about the fact that faith is imperative in the Christian life, for it is faith that saves us. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul said, For by grace are you saved, through faith and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We also find in God's word that the Bible declares that a Christian is to walk or live by faith. We are even told by the Apostle Paul in the 14th chapter of the book of Romans and in verse 23 that whatever we do that is separate and apart from faith is sin. Very interesting what Paul was pointing out in the 14th chapter of the book of Romans. It's a chapter that we often refer to as the things in life that, are, uh, that we are allowed to do liberty-wise that are not infringing upon law. And there are things that we can do along that line that the Bible does not discuss or declare, and it would not tell us that a particular thing is wrong. Then when we look at that particular thing that we might do, we find that it does not infringe upon law, and therefore it is not sin. But very interesting, though, Paul said that if your conscience is against it or that particular thing is going to go against your conscience because you feel it's wrong, even though the Bible does not declare it's wrong, it is a sin to you. And so anything that is apart from faith is sin. But you know, in understanding faith, it is important to realize that there are three different kinds of faith that James describes in the second chapter of his letter there. And the only one kind of faith, though, is good. Only one kind of faith is truly saving faith. In the passage that's before us in James chapter 2 and in verses 14 through 26, we find James is discussing the different kinds of faith with an emphasis upon the one that will work toward the saving of the soul. You know, the Bible already said, and we already quoted, that the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. We know that he gave a Bible definition in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. So you and I know, and he also mentioned in Ephesians 2 and 8, that we are saved by this faith. So the question comes up, what faith is going to be acceptable in the eyes of God? James deals with three kinds in James 2, so we need to ask ourselves the question, what are the three and which one is going to help me go to heaven one day? That's the only one that I'm concerned about. But let's notice a couple of others that he dealt with. First of all, he said there is a dead faith. A dead faith. 
Yes, it is impossible to have a type of faith, but have it be of no benefit to you at all, and that is a dead one. A dead faith is one who substitutes words for deeds. Very important. You know, I couldn't come up with a greater example of this than James did himself in verse 15. Notice what he says. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? This is a person that is sympathizing with his speech, but doing nothing with his actions to help the need. It'd be like this. If my brother Terry was starving and he came to me destitute of daily food. And I say, go in peace, brother. Be you warmed and filled. I'm feeling for you. Go ahead and be warmed and filled. Depart from this place right now and so on. What have I done for him? I've done absolutely nothing. Now that might seem like an extreme example, but that's what James is saying. An example is of a man who has a dead faith. This is a person that has some knowledge though. They have some knowledge about what the Bible teaches on the subject of salvation. This is a person that has some knowledge regarding the specific things that are outlined regarding faith in God's word. So we're not talking about a person that is ignorant. We are talking about a person that has been educated in God's word, at least to the extent regarding God, his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord's church, and how we must live. This is a person that has an understanding of those things. Let me just give you one more example before we press on. An example that Jesus dealt with, you remember, in one of his parables. Jesus dealt with the parable of the two sons. And what he says to the first one is, he says, go into my vineyard and labor there. The first son says, no problem. He says, well, he said, the first one says, I'm not going. I'm not going to go in your vineyard. But the Bible says later he repented and then he went. But the second son immediately said, no problem. I'll go. Sure, you can count on me. You ever known somebody like that? Man, they're long on telling you that they're going to be there. They're long on saying they're going to be right there with you. But when it comes down to it, they are nowhere to be found. Could it be that even among God's people, we have folks like that? Well, here it is, the second son. Jesus said, which one did the father's will? What else could they answer but, well, the first? He repented and then he went. You see, his actions and his deeds and his obedience was what was in question. And that was the only thing that the father would deem acceptable. Here's my point. What Jesus was pointing out is the fact that we live in a generation of sayers and not doers. Could it be, though, that even among God's people, we are sayers but not doers? One that has a dead faith is one who, number one, knows the correct vocabulary for prayer and sound doctrine. This is a person that perhaps can even quote the right verses of Scripture that are found in God's Word. But their walk does not measure up with their talk. 
So what it is, it's a man who uh, uh, substitutes words for works. But secondly, this is one who has only an intellectual faith. In one's mind, he or she knows the doctrine of salvation, but they have never submitted themselves to God and trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They know all the right words to say, but they don't back up their words with their obedient works. The question is before us, can this faith save a man? The answer is quite simply, no, it cannot. It is impossible for this one to have a saving faith because three times, once in verse 17, verse 20, and verse 26, James declares and describes that faith without works is dead. So if we're not working, if we are not doing anything, if we are not going beyond intellectual faith, we have a dead faith, and that faith cannot save. More on that. As one man said, also, any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life and good works is a false declaration or a dead faith. Another said that dead faith is a counterfeit faith. Now what's so scary about a counterfeit dead faith? Unfortunately, it lulls a person into a false confidence of eternal life. It lulls a person to sleep spiritually, as it were, in that he is lulling himself and he is misguided and he has confidence in that which is not real. False sense of security and a false confidence in eternal salvation. Well, all of this being said, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we have a dead faith? If we examine these things thus far, do the things that we have said, do they compare to our life and match up? Well, let's answer it this way. We have a dead faith if... Our walk does not measure up to our talk, and our works do not measure up to our words. But you know, there's another type of faith that James describes, believe it or not, and it's the faith that the devils have. We'll just call it demonic faith today. Demonic faith, the faith of the devils. You know what's very interesting about this is we might look at the first one and say, well, I'm not guilty of a dead faith. But then when we compare it to demonic faith or the, or the faith that the devils possessed, according to James, we need to be careful because we might fall under that category. Can you imagine all of a sudden one day coming to the idea or coming to the knowledge that we have the same faith that the devils had? Let me ask you this. I would just imagine that I can go into the entire world and I can ask people the question, do you believe that Satan and the angels of heaven that were cast out of heaven down into pits or chains of darkness awaiting the resurrection to be cast into the place that was prepared for them, incidentally, that's Gehenna hell, and that's the place that we will go if we don't have the faith that the Bible teaches we must have. Therefore, understanding that, 
We can go out and ask anyone in the world, not even amongst those religious folks in the, in the denominations all around us, and ask the question, do you believe that Satan is going to go to heaven? I would imagine everyone would say, well, surely not. Surely not. We need to be careful we don't possess the same type of faith. Beginning in verse 18, James says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Notice, this particular faith is one step above a dead faith. Notice, there was another man in a conversion story that failed in God's word, and that is Governor Felix. You remember that Governor Felix did the same thing that the devils do. What do the devils do? They believe and they tremble. What did Felix do? Well, the Bible says that the Apostle Paul was preaching to him, and what exactly, word for word, we don't know just exactly what he said. All we know is that Paul reasoned with him of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Now, I'll tell you this. Whatever he said, it caused him to tremble. It caused his emotions to be involved. It wasn't just intellectual faith. Oh, no. He believed that, too. The only way that he would be moved to tremble was that he believed intellectually to the things that Paul had said. If he had not, he would have cast that aside as not important. I don't believe it. I don't agree with it. And so on. And so he had intellectual knowledge or intellectual faith. He had also emotional faith because it caused him to be moved to tremble. The question is, did it do him any good? Now we know that James is declaring that it didn't do the devils any good. What about Felix? What did he say? Was it enough? Absolutely not. The Bible says that he trembled and he said these horrible words. Go thy way for now. And when I have a more convenient season, I will call for thee. When we look at his life, we don't find one passage of scripture after that time when this man Felix had another opportunity to obey the gospel and did it. I would just imagine, it is my opinion, that if this man would have repented and this man would have come and been converted later on, I would just imagine that it would be found in divine inspiration for our knowledge and for us to see. That's just my opinion. Now let's talk about something that is not my opinion. It is the fact of Felix in his case. What did he do? He believed intellectually. He trembled, showing that he believed and he had faith emotionally. But he said, go thy way. And he rejected the most important thing. And that's obedience to the gospel call. Notice a couple more things about these demons. You know, perhaps to shock any complacent reader, James reminds us that even the demons tremble. They have a kind of faith. Yes, indeed, those that are demons believe in God. We're not talking about an atheist or an agnostic. We're talking about people that know or beings that know that there is a God in heaven. But let's notice what else the demons know. I thought this was rather interesting. Hopefully you will too. But first of all, do you know that the demons believe in the deity of Christ? 
Oh, that's a wonderful thing to believe, isn't it? We want to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Hear the words that are found in Mark, the third chapter, beginning in verse 11, where it says, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God, and straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Yes, they believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Secondly, they believe in the existence of a place of condemnation. Luke chapter 8 and verse number 31. But not only that, they also believe that Jesus Christ will be the judge in that last and final day. Can you imagine that? These are lost beings that believe in the existence of God, the deity of Christ, a place of condemnation, and that Jesus Christ will be the great magistrate that day that will all be before that throne when Jesus passes formal sentence on the wicked and rewards those that have done the things that are found in God's word. Listen, folks, the devils believe that too. How do I know that? Look at a very interesting passage of scripture found in Matthew chapter 8 and verses 28 and 29. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by thy way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee? Listen, Jesus, thou son of God, here he comes, and thou come hither to torment us before the time. Yeah. They know that Jesus is going to take care of them and cast them from chains or pits of darkness into the, into the lake of fire one day. They knew that. They know it today also. But they said, what are you doing, Jesus? Thou son of God, recognizing God and the deity of Christ. Why are you come here now to torment us before it is time? Yeah, they believe that. They know that Jesus will be the judge on that day. What kind of faith do the demons have? Well, let's look back. We saw that a dead faith is one who is touched by his intellect only. The, the death or the demonic faith or those that had this kind of faith were those that had an intellectual and an emotional faith only. And the question, can this faith save us? Well, certainly not, because a person can be enlightened in his own mind and a person can even be stirred in his own heart and still be lost in a devil's hell for all eternity. True saving faith involves something that is more, something that can be seen and recognized. That is so important because the world does not believe that. The religious world especially does not believe that there needs to be something that people can see regarding your faith. But that is the case though. A person that is going to have the saving faith of the Bible needs to have something that can be seen by others and recognized by others as different. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a changed life. If your faith does not change your life, and you don't have the faith that can save you. Going back to verse 18, notice what James says. He says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. 
Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. A Christian involves, or being a Christian involves two things. Trusting and coming to, in obedience to the gospel, coming to Jesus. But secondly, it involves living for Jesus. We must also understand that in becoming a Christian, we understand that we receive something that the world does not have. When we talk about life and death, and we're not talking about physical life and death, we are talking about spiritual life and death. Everyone that is not a Christian is, at that time, spiritually dead. They have to receive what? They have to receive life. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we all should walk in newness of life. That's what we get when we come to Christ. You know, the religious world would say that you can have that, and that'll save you one time, and you have nothing else to do. That's not what James teaches here, because once you receive this, your life has to reveal this. The things that you do have to reveal the life that you've been given as a Christian. Well, do we have the kind of faith that we talk about today as demonic faith? Well, we do if we believe the right things and feel the right things only. We also do if our, ser if our service to God does not go beyond intellectually adhering to the right doctrines. And secondly, if it does not go beyond emotional experiences while we attend services. It must go farther and beyond that. In summary, thus far, James introduces us to these two kinds of faith that can never save dead faith and demonic faith. But there's another one, though, and, and this we'll just call dynamic faith. Dynamic faith. This is the kind of faith that will save your soul. Without this kind, it is not good enough because it is lacking. We're so grateful that James gives us in the next section of scriptures in verses 20 through 26, he describes what we have to do to have that. Beginning in verse 20, James says, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by faith was faith made perfect and by works was faith made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only Notice the examples, and I think this is very interesting. We'll spend just a few uh, minutes on this in just a moment, but notice. He gives an example of those that have a dynamic, working, saving faith. He says, Abraham and Rahab. Now, I'll tell you, can you imagine two people that are any more different than Abraham and Rahab? More on that in a minute. 
So the question is, what kind of faith is dynamic faith? First of all, we know from other passages of Scripture that such faith is based on the Word of God. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, the Bible says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Dynamic faith is different from dead and demonic faith because this is the one that involves the whole man. Dead faith touches only the intellect. Demonic faith is the intellect and the emotions. But the dynamic is the intellect, emotions, and the most important part of all, the will. It's got to affect that. You know, sometimes folks think that there's a whole lot of gray in this world. I think there's a lot of black and white. I really do, especially when it comes to obedience to God's word. I think sometimes people need to realize that our decisions are plotting out the course of where we're going to spend eternity. I believe that with all my heart. Because it doesn't matter what your circumstances have been in days gone by. That doesn't matter. Oh, it causes us in the flesh to be sympathetic and so on. But at the end of the day, when we stand before our maker, when Jesus is on that judgment bar, it's not going to matter the circumstances in our life. What's going to matter is the choices that we made. What's going to matter is this. We've been given the free will to obey or disobey. And what's going to be before us is did we do it or did we not? That's as simple as that, folks. That's what James says. Did we do it or did we not? It leads us to action. It's not intellectual contemplation. It is not simple emotionalism. But it is that which leads to obedience in doing good works. Now, very briefly, let's look at the two examples that James gives and as I mentioned just a moment ago, you really cannot go into the pages of divine inspiration and find two people that are classed together as a character of faith or who has been listed in the 11th chapter in the Hall of Fame of Faith recorded there of all of those heroes that stand as an example to you and I that have gone by and days gone by. You will not find two people that are any more different or opposite than Abraham and Rahab and yet James pictures them together with a certain likeness. Notice, Abraham, as we compare him, Abraham was the father of the Jews. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a godly man, but Rahab was a harlot. Abraham was the friend of God. Rahab belonged to the enemies of God. What did they have in common then? They had the saving faith demonstrated by their obedient works. Abraham demonstrated this faith, James says, when he offered Isaac upon the altar. And I'll just say this. We know the story. I'll not go into great detail on either one of the stories regarding their faith. I'll briefly brush by them and I'll just say this. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Abraham? What if God said to you, take thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and you offer him, you take him to a place that I will tell thee, and you offer him as a sacrifice unto me. 
I would just imagine that if a person by his faith is going to be a working obedient faith or is going to actually do what God says, chances are he's going to at least question God and ask God, why is that? No, the Bible says he rose up early. I'm going to tell you something. He stood over his boy that day. I can't fathom such a horrible thing. And he was going to take his life. How must it have been to hear in the ears of Abraham the words of his son that says, Behold the wood in the fire, but where's the lamb? The faith of Abraham was described in his response. He says, My son, God shall provide a lamb. That's faith. That's dynamic, working, obedient faith. What about Rahab? This is a harlot. You remember very briefly when Joshua had sent out those messengers to spy the land, even Jericho? He wanted some information that was inside those, that walled city. He wanted to find out about perhaps the number of inhabitants that were there. I don't know, maybe the size of their army or the state of their preparation and preparedness because he wanted to know that because he was going to go in and destroy. Very interesting, though, these two messengers find a very unlikely ally in a harlot named Rahab. That's what he uses. He uses Rahab as an example. These men are hidden. And these men had tried, I would just imagine, to remain undetected. But in all of their attempts, they failed. And word gets back to the king that over at Rahab's house, those two spies, those two messengers are there. What's the king do? He sends out soldiers. He sent them straight to Rahab's house. I would just imagine that Rahab, all the strength it must have been for her to muster up within herself to stand there and have these soldiers pressing upon her and coming out her with threats and whatever it was that they said. And all of a sudden, she has an opportunity now to be looked on, not down like she's always been looked upon, but now she could actually look, be looked upon in the eyes of the king, the soldiers, and all of those fellow uh, people that lived in that city in a positive and wonderful way by doing her patriotic duty. But she doesn't. She doesn't. She's strong. She says, well, when it was dark, they left. I don't know where they went. Then she says, go quick. Hurry up. That you might overtake them. Here's the question. Why did she do it? Well, she answers just exactly why she did it when she got back to the roof. Where the messengers were and I want you to hear what she said to them. This is why. When she got to that roof, she said, I know the Lord hath given you this land. Past tense, it's already done. I know that. And your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Well, we know the story. She lets them down by a cord through the window, out the window, and tells them to go into the mountains and for three days hide there until the pursuers be returned. We know that. And then she says, as I've shown you this kindness, show also unto me kindness as well and spare me and my house. 
Well, this is what they said. They said, that's a deal, basically, our life for yours only upon the condition that you don't tell anybody. And secondly, upon the condition, you take that, that cord of scarlet thread and you bind it in the window. And whoever is in the house behind that scarlet line, when Israel comes, will be spared. She was spared because of her dynamic, working, obedient faith. It's so important in conclusion today that each professing Christian sit down and examine his or her life and his or her heart. We need to make sure that we all possess the true saving faith that James describes in this chapter. But I think it's also important that we must understand that sometimes being honest with ourselves is the most difficult challenge of all. But remember that Satan is the great deceiver and one of his devices is imitation. If he can convince us that counterfeit faith is true faith, then he's got that person in his power. Well, here are some questions that we can ask ourselves very briefly as we examine our faith today. Was there a time when I honestly realized that I was a sinner and admitted this to myself and to God? Was there a time when my heart stirred me to flee from the wrath to come? Have I ever been seriously worked up over my sins? Do I truly understand the gospel? That Jesus Christ died for my sins and then rose again. Do I understand and confess that I, will, I cannot save myself? Did I sincerely repent of my sins making the decision to turn from them and listen? Do I now as a result hate sin and fear God? Or do I secretly love sin and wish to enjoy it from time to time? Have I trusted Jesus Christ and Him alone for my salvation by responding to the commands that He has given me? Have I confessed my name or my faith in Jesus Christ and then been baptized for the remission of my sins and do the things that Jesus and His apostles commanded? Has there been a change in my life? Do I maintain good works? Or are my good works occasional and weak? Do I seek to grow in the things of the Lord? Can others tell that I have been with Jesus? Do I have a desire to share Christ with others? Or am I ashamed? Do I enjoy the fellowship of God's people? Or would I rather hang out with the world? Is worship a delight to me? Or is it just a burden and something I would rather not do? Am I ready for the Lord's return? Am I eagerly waiting for it? Or will I be ashamed when he comes for me? You know, far too many people, even among God's people especially, they've quit serving God because of circumstances. You know what's sad to me is when somebody leaves the church and they say when you talk to them, well, brother so-and-so really hurt my feelings. Or sometimes people say, well, you know, uh, I'm just angry right now. I'm just angry. I'm discouraged. Circumstances in my life have caused me to be so. 
Sometimes folks say, I just can't do more and I can't have a dynamic working faith because I just don't have the ability that others have. Some say, you know, I'd like to do more. I'm just too tired. I don't feel good. Let me just leave you with a little story. It's a true story and maybe you know it, perhaps you do. I think a movie was made after this man's life quite recently. But it was a man named Bill Porter. I want you to think about this when you think you're too tired. Bill Porter was born with cerebral palsy. Now we know what all that entails. He could barely walk. He could barely speak. He went from job to job trying to find someone that would employ him. But social services said, no, you will never be fit to work any day of your life. You will be on government assistance all the days of your life. But you know, this fellow didn't let that happen. He didn't let that occur where he would take government assistance. You know what he did? He kept going out until finally somebody hired him. And finally, that company was the Watkins Company, a sales company, and they hired him as a salesman. Now, that sounds like a triumph, doesn't it? It sounds like he's finally got his chance, doesn't it? Here are the conditions, though, of his employment. Anybody that's ever sold anything, you'll know exactly what I'm saying right here. You've got to take the territory that nobody wants and no salary. No training salary, no training bonus. Oh, no. You're on your own in that territory, door to door with yourself and no, and no salary, just commissions only. I understand that this crippled man walked 10 miles every day. He knocked on door after door after door. When he got an order, he had to ask the customer to fill out the order form because his right hand didn't work. He could barely speak. Things that you and I take for granted, he struggled with. What happened to this man? How could a man like that ever succeed? You know what happened to him? He became the number one salesman in the country. That's amazing to me. You know why? That's the best part. The reason why he never considered himself nor branded himself as one that had a handicap. He never branded himself as one who had these challenges around him. He never gave himself a disability. You know what's even better? When he became extremely successful, he never considered himself to be special either. You know what he did? This is what he did right here. He got up every day and he went to work. He was interviewed one time. You know what he said? He said, people asked him, how, how, how could you do it? What drove you? He said, oh, nothing special. I had a job to do and I had to do it whether I felt like it or whether I didn't. Could it be that the Christian today can learn from that attitude? I got a job to do. I have a job to do in living my life with my dynamic working faith. And I don't care how I feel about it. I don't care if I feel sick today. I don't care if I'm tired. I'm going to get up and do it. And I might suffer in this life physically. I might have ailments and problems. I'm going to tell you something. 
You get to heaven, you get all the rest you'll ever need. Well, at all the rest, that's what heaven's for. Let's not rest now. Let's work now and rest later. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.